Welcome to A Shot in the Arm podcast with me, Ben Plumley. And in this episode, we are looking backwards to move forwards. And I'm delighted that our guest today is a longtime friend of A Shot in the Arm podcast. She was on here ooh, three years ago. She's also a really dear friend of mine and a great mentor, Robin Gorner, one of the brightest stars of our generation in the global AIDS movement. Robin, welcome back to A Shot in the Arm podcast. Thank you, Ben, and that was way too generous. You know, we've known each other, I hate to say it, we've known each other since the 1980s. Can you believe that? We were in primary school at the time. I think it was kindergarten, actually. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> now, we, we last spoke on the podcast, what, just over three years ago? And uh, at the heart of the COVID pandemic, and you were experiencing long COVID. And um, I got to say, in the, the years subsequent to that, we've obviously stayed in touch. I joined you getting COVID and then getting long COVID. So how are you doing now? How are you feeling? I'm always really nervous to answer this question, but I'd say that in the last three or four months, I felt remarkably better. And it's amazing because I've been living with long COVID for, I'd say, three years. Um, and when we last spoke, it was because you were giving some space to some of the early thinking around some long COVID advocacy and my concerns that we needed to use all that you and I and thousands of others had learned from the AIDS crisis to get some momentum behind long COVID. And I think we started to, and we still don't know enough about it. So I'm always nervous to say I'm better, but I've felt dramatically better in the last few months, which is wonderful. I mean, for me, I mean, it, it, in, in a sense, there's a certain irony and sick humor to this in that I have felt a very significant uh, cognitive impairment, which means that I sort of forget halfway through what I'm talking about, which is a bit of a challenge for a podcaster. But um, you seem as sharp as ever. Um, are, you, are, you, are you mentally feeling good and uh, recovered? I am. And, and, but I'd say that that cognitive dysfunction was really one of the hardest things. And I spoke with a lot of friends who were academics and who were doctors who also developed long COVID. And it was really the strangest thing when your professional life, your personal life has been about being able to process information, being a bit of a grammar fiend, being uh, usually pretty okay at communicating and just not being able to remember stuff, it taking four weeks to do things that used to take four days. But today I, I traveled quite a long journey through long, big airports and, and I was rejoicing that I could walk without thinking about the fact that I was walking. And that is kind of new for me because I've spent a couple of years where just really basic stuff wasn't available to me cognitively, but also physically. Um, and one of the problems people with long COVID is you can't exercise because if you exercise two days later, you're just stranded, you're back in bed. Um, so I'm really, really pleased that since earlier this year, I've, I've felt a lot better, but kind of still incredibly disappointed that the world hasn't caught up with quite how serious the long COVID pandemic is. Um, and I've been in touch with people on all continents, from all countries. And I'm particularly worried about health workers who've been on the front line as have educators and huge numbers of them in the millions, WHO reckons, have got long COVID. And I think that's going to cause incredible challenges for our world moving forward. And, you know, many of us still have heart damage and who knows what that will do in the long run. So I'm 
personally feeling excited to have my energy and some of my cognitive skills back. But, uh, you know, politically as an advocate, I'm still banging at that drum. Yeah, I mean, this this is a pandemic that is by no means over. We're just understanding it, as we did with HIV. But it's great that you are traveling. And um, where are you today? I think we are we're finding you in Europe. You are. I'm staring out at very sunny Stockholm in Sweden. And uh, I was told when I checked into the hotel that this is it. For the next 24 hours, the sun is not going down. Um, and I'm here for the AIDS Impact Conference. I actually opened the very first AIDS Impact Conference in 1991 in, um, in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam, when I was working for the European Commission. And at that time, it was called the Biopsychosocial Aspects of AIDS Conference. Wow. Yeah, terrible title. So one of the great things they've done as we look back is they've done a bit of rebranding. But it's actually a conference I really love because it's about the researchers who look at the social, the cultural, the psychological impact of AIDS, as well as the body impact. And and I think you and I both know, having been around for a little while, that one of the reasons the epidemic had such a massive impact in the 80s and 90s was that it wasn't just just an illness. It still isn't just an illness. But it perhaps was the first of our, if I might put it that way, modern illnesses where people really woke up to the fact that this was about everything and everyone. It wasn't just about the patient. And and you're giving the closing plenary, yes? What, what are you going to be saying? What am I going to be saying? Well, I'm going to be looking back at what we've done well and not so well in HIV and trying to figure out what it is from the past that's really going to help us move forward on HIV and also on other things that I care deeply about, but I also think our, our world cares deeply about, whether it's other pandemics or women's rights or other social justice movements. And, you know, I've been really enjoying a wander down memory lane. That, that's been one of the great positives of long COVID. I've had time to reflect. And I find it so interesting when we look back at the awful things that we experienced and we really, you know, we lost hundreds of thousands, millions of the brightest and the best at the beginning of the AIDS crisis. But those of us who had the privilege of sharing that kind of pain, we were part of a social movement that I think will always be known for having had a profound impact on our world. And I think it is one of the first social movements where we really saw global solidarity kick off. And I really want to look at that and what does that mean for us to be working internationally and I think that's a factor of when it happened. It happened, you know, when we both started, it was before email, it was before text, it was it was at a time when those things were evolving. Um, I also want to look back at activism, obviously. I mean, we are we are products, I am a product of the AIDS activist movement and what we've achieved and what we can learn and how we need to adapt our activism, human rights and women's rights totally entwined and fundamental to the epidemic. And, and, you know, one of the other things that I think I want to look at is how cultures have adapted, been affected, but also the cultural, the artistic response and communication. I think we learned to do health education in a really new and vibrant way through the HIV crisis. Um, and finally, I want to look at the fact that AIDS isn't over. It just isn't over. And People wish it was. They wish COVID was over. These things are not over. We just live with them differently. Yeah, we can't wish things away. Um, and so this is really interesting to me and why I was so keen to get you on the podcast. It's an issue that I've been giving a lot of thought to myself as, you know, our generation, uh, 
a, a generation of people who grew up with HIV, um, with AIDS in society, with our friends, our lovers, everything, our entire careers. And, and I think it's, it is timely for us to reflect on what we have done, where the response goes from here and, and what role, if any, we have. And, you know, from my perspective, it, it has also tied in with a growing understanding of the need for um, the United Kingdom, particularly, to rethink uh, and reflect on its role as, you know, colonial overlord. Um, you, you know, for so much in the 80s and 90s, we were thinking of empire as, you know, sepia-tinted merchant ivory movies or films, as we say in England. And and it really isn't that. And so, so, so for me, this is a very timely conversation. But for you, why now? Why reflect on our past to inform our future now? Gosh, that's a that's a great question. And, you know, there's so much in there to unpack. I became an AIDS activist whilst I was still at university. And as you say, that was a very odd time. And, and, and I think uh, both of us went to very particular, I think we call them elite universities, where some of that empire stuff was very baked into the way we did our growing up as students. And for me, coming from a and basically an immigrant family and a family where social justice was what we talked around around the around the table and race equality because you know my parents both well my mother and my stepfather who's Guyanese worked in race equality suddenly I was in this really posh university and no one in my family had been to university so what was all this about and and it totally transformed my life when my best friend who was gay died not of AIDS actually but the homophobia, that societal horror at the time, um, as AIDS was breaking out, it was 1986, and it was just such a different world. And I remember going to see The Normal Heart, Larry Kramer's play. I didn't say great play. It wasn't a great play, but it was a play that changed you know, many, many people's lives because it woke us up to how hatred and discrimination were killing people, but also how each and every one of us had a chance to make a difference. And I think when I now fast forward nearly 40 years, 35 years for me, and, and look back and think, we are doing some things incredibly well, and we are also doing some things not as well as we should. We're not learning enough stories from the past. We're, we're repeating things. Um, and I also think we need to pay attention to what we should have done differently and better then. And from the British perspective, it's really tricky. Tricky is a very small word for a very big problem. We have this hideous legacy of empire, which is multi-layered and complicated. And we are very correctly, in some parts of our society, taking a good number of steps. And in many parts of our society, it's getting so much worse. Um, and bizarrely, the government, when I was growing up in the 80s and becoming an AIDS activist, even though it was a revolting right-wing government, with an appalling prime minister, they actually had a pretty good AIDS response. They had a rather marvellous health minister, Lord Fowler, who continues to be marvellous. And, and he was speaking out quite brilliantly as our former prime minister happily left parliament a few days ago and was one of the only Tories who would say how dreadful that man was and what he did. But, but the tragedy, I think, for those of us who've lived through the last decade in the UK is that a we had become, I think, well known for a very positive, very thoughtful 
um, approach to international development, one that really put the power with the countries and the communities we care most about. And, and we've wrecked that. It's one of the many things that our current government has ruined. And, and they've ruined it because our society, I would argue, has just become so much more racist and so much more insular. And it's, you know, people outside see it in terms of Brexit and what we did there that many of us just remain so horrified by and so perplexed by. But deep in our society, the, the divisions are great in the UK right now. And, and it really troubles me and worries me. And I think, you know, we need to go back and look at what we did well and where we can get some of that fire in the belly back from. So if you, if you then look at what we did well, first of all, first mm. up, what really stands out to you from from a global perspective, rather than say just a, a an anglophone or a, a a northern perspective? Yeah, I, I mean, there's so much we did do right. Okay, so I think we really need to hang on to that. And and again, I'm I'm speaking like you know from the time before we had treatment, and and that time before we had treatment, what we did well as a world and as multiple societies is we let, not let, that sounds very patronizing, but we created a system where the people most affected were at the center. Um, the people with HIV movement was absolutely fundamental. In the UK, it was a group called Frontliners that I had the privilege of working with. Um, and, you know, tragically over time, they lost funding, but and they, they no longer exist, but they were absolutely the engine of it. In many countries, we still have incredibly powerful coalitions of people with HIV and AIDS. Um, and now a lot of good key populations network, youth networks, that concept of nothing about us without us, which has become the rallying cry of the broader disabilities movement now. I remember being at that first um, global meeting where people with HIV stood up and they declared the greater involvement of people with HIV and AIDS, the meaningful involvement, actually listening to people first. I think that was one of the fundamental things we got right. I think the other thing was an absolute impatience with discrimination and human rights abuses. And, and actually, if we look at the positive side of things, the number of countries where gay marriage is now legal and actually quite normal. And in you know certain societies, clearly not all by any stretch, but there is an ease of conversation about being queer and trans and, and young that is truly unthinkable 30, 35 years ago. And I believe that is a direct consequence of the AIDS crisis and the fact that those extraordinary gay men in the early days who frankly felt they had nothing to lose because they had no you know no treatment it, it was a wretched situation they just got on the streets and they tackled the horrors of discrimination um but it wasn't just in wealthy countries either if we look at tasso I remember working with Noirin Kleber and Sam Kalibala back in the 80s. And as they were founding this incredible, powerful, vibrant group in Uganda, which is one of the most extraordinary community groups that's remained. And then we had the Mumbai Lawyers Collective. I mean, just people on the streets, but also in the courtrooms, also in the corridors of power, infiltrating, being, you know, a lot of the time I was, I sometimes would call it a briefcase activist. I would be putting on my smart frocks and walking the cor corridors of bureaucracy. And there were loads of us doing that. There were activists infiltrating, you know, television companies and making sure the right programs came out. We see that still with MTV Sugar and, you know, fantastic programs like 
uh, Seoul City in South Africa. And, you know, just being everywhere. We were everywhere. And we were bold and we were daring. And in terms of communications, in the mass media side, but also health education, we talked about sex openly, bluntly, clearly with enthusiasm, <laughs> not just with horror. That changed lives. And and I suppose then, where have we not got it right? And 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 let me kick off there because you rightly talk about um, uh, not scaring people into um, uh, so-called safer behaviours. Um, and I I remember my um, uh, boss at the Global Business Coalition, Richard Holbrook, saying what you need to do is to say to people, AIDS kills. Wear a condom. Get tested, and if you're positive, get treatment. Bomb finished. But in fact, and 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 again, you mentioned Tasso, but but right across sub-Saharan Africa, groups of women leading a conversation, again, nothing for us without us, around we have to be more than just vehicles of transmission. We have to be understood as complete people ourselves. Crazy for a white man, I know, to be saying this. But it does seem to me that there was a toing and froing, a an interchange of education between North and South that I don't know that we've maintained. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good point. And I think that we're not as good at some of that global dialogue as we used to be, which is bizarre on one level because we we have a lot of global conversations. <laughs> um but maybe that's the downside of our very dynamic communication mechanisms. We've got really good at exchanging information, but we've not always gotten so good these days at sitting down and really listening and learning from each other. And, you know, what you say about the women's side of things is very poignant to me. And, um, you know, in the 80s, I became friends with a lot of women living with HIV. I'm not living with HIV, but I was very strongly an ally of, of theirs and got involved in treatment activism forum with women who were just not getting the treatment they needed. They were not having their symptoms recognized. This all sounds a bit familiar with the long COVID these days, but it was a really wretched time pre-heart. Pre um, and I ended up writing a book called Vamps, Virgins and Victims, How Can Women Fight AIDS? And that concept of, you know, are we a vessel? Are we a vector? You know, the ways in which women were basically not allowed to be human beings. They were either baby carriers or they were these evil prostitutes who were to be feared or they were the poor innocent victims of some you know terrible harm that was done to them and i do think as i've continued in my work and i've gotten more involved in women's rights movements more broadly around sexual and reproductive health and rights and abortion rights you know the hatred of women's bodies continues and is very I think connected with the same level of discrimination against gay men that has has been persistent through the decades. But you do see, I think, um, not as much allyship as we used to see in the old days, and and maybe that's because the urgency has diminished. Um, we've stopped needing to have those very urgent conversations, and and I often feel that a lot of our global solidarity happened because. In the 80s and 90s, we'd go physically to international AIDS conferences and you would, I would watch gay men from Berlin meeting a positive woman from Kenya and realizing that the gay man had medication, even if it wasn't perfect, and the positive woman didn't, and they would start to exchange. And, and I think that was part of what led to 
ITPC and the Treatment Action Campaign, really having that great dialogue um, with US and UK groups. ITPC being the International Treatment Preparedness Coalition, and I was one of its board members at one point. Really? Um, yes, well yes, yes. Board calls at uh, midnight, and um, there is a, not to get us off track, but there is a wonderful story that Greg Gonzalez, who was the chair at the time, uh, tells me that um, we had a fantastic board meeting. Um, I said my name at the start, said how pleased I was to be there. And my next recollection was Greg wrapping the board meeting up. I'd fallen back asleep again. Thanks, Ben. You were, you were supremely helpful on this particular board meeting. Oh, okay. But look. Greg, but let me just give you an anecdote. It's kind of poignant to what we're saying. Greg taught me treatment activism. In 1992, I was one of the founders of the European AIDS Treatment Group, and that was um, a bunch of us from across Europe. We, Gosh, Britain was in Europe then. And uh, Mark Harrington, Greg Gonzalez, Linda D came over, and they taught us, and they did these treatment activist training schools. And then they went to South Africa, and Greg and his partner lived in South Africa for a number of years, as you know. And that was kind of, you know, sometimes we use words like capacity building. But this was real capacity building. It's like, and then look at what happened with TAG. You know, it just took its own energy, its own momentum, and it's now the engine for new ideas all over. Although tragically, TAG, like far too many community groups, now is running out of money. Well, the money that, that's right. But but here's the thing, just to just to question or challenge the the, the narrative a little bit, um, we we sort of didn't need, or did we? need Western treatment activism, Northern treatment activism in the South. What's your sense um, and response to the argument that in fact, well, it, it was it was um, uh, building anyway, and that what happened with a number of Northern activists was that they helped forge connections that were already being um, established. So it, it wasn't a, uh, it, it wasn't a, a, a transposition, if you like, of Western-style treatment activism? I'd say yes, but absolutely. I mean, every local situation is different. I mean, you know, but did women treatment activists need the men treatment activists? Yes, we did, because actually the guys were there first. And if they hadn't taught the women who were becoming treatment activists how to become treatment activists, we wouldn't have known some of the structures. You worked for Evil Farmer at one point. You know that... Those of us who didn't needed to learn from people like you about how those systems and levers of power worked. I remember, you know, as a baby treatment activist, sitting at the feet of doctors, researchers, and the American treatment activists because they'd been in the game for longer. Then we took it at that time as European activists and made it our own and told them to get out the way. And and I think I was going to use different language, but I tried to be proper. Um, but I think that was the case for TAC. I don't think TAC was ever dependent upon the Northern activists, but it, it sped things up a little bit. And then they could adapt it and kick them out and do it differently because the needs were different. But I do think in the pre-heart era, and that's really what I'm thinking a lot about right now, you know, those years before 96, when people were dying at an astonishing rate, um, and we experienced a level of death and bereavement 
that I think it is hard to remember. And actually, this is where the parallels for me with COVID happen again. It's actually very hard for many of us to remember what 2020 was like. Living in the centre of London, where all you heard was ambulances, mm. you know, and, and, and the death rate was just pounding. And, and in, in the UK right now, we're kind of being pulled back to it because of the, the disgrace of what the Prime Minister at the time did then. And it's like we need to hold on to the positive things then. But none of, none of what I've just said should mean that I in any way think Northern activists have to teach Southern activists. I don't believe that at all. In fact, I think many of the lessons have been much stronger the other way. Well, back to back to the uh, aid service organisation, TASO is a great example. But moving on, Robin... Um, the connections now between HIV and other diseases. And and you said something at the start about HIV being one of the first of a new wave of illnesses that we're going to have to deal with. COVID forms a part of that. And we now have this movement about, around pandemics preparation and pan, pandemics preparedness and response. Let me get that right. And um, how do you see that movement developing. Um, are we doing enough? Is it doing the right things? It's certainly the buzzword, isn't it? I mean, everybody loves a bit of PPR. Even if I could get the words right. Yeah, you need to get the words right. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's everywhere, isn't it? Certainly, you know, my my the, 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 the email groups that I'm on, I'm on as many COVID-19 and PPRs, far more emails coming through on that than on Uganda or anti-homosexuality legislation. And it worries me a little bit, I'll be honest with you, because I remain frustrated that we didn't do enough to learn from AIDS in the COVID response. Countries that did really well at the beginning did. I was listening the other day to Jacinda Ahern again and to one of her early speeches where she said, um, she said, we must all act as if we have COVID-19. And it was at a point when I think New Zealand had a sum total of 180 cases. And it made me think, do you remember those days in the 80s and 90s where we would say, we must all act as if we're living with HIV? You know, there were so many things that we knew if we'd been around early HIV could and should have happened in early days of COVID. Some countries got it right and many didn't. What always astonished me is how little we listened to Asia. Asian countries did extraordinarily well with SARS and MERS. They managed to turn the tide of many infectious diseases. And when COVID came along, many of them managed to keep numbers incredibly low. My children are half Asian and I spent time in Indonesia during um, the pandemics. And, you know, it was really very sensible public health, very solid at times. Other people said, oh, it's terribly repressive. Well, it might have been repressive, but there weren't people dying like there were in central London. I think with PPR... I mean, we've got to get it right. We've got to do better as a world than we did before. And we've, the thing we've got to really nail is the question of intellectual property and the price of drugs. And we've been trying to nail that for 30 odd years in the HIV space. And if it takes, you know, something that people call the pandemic to sort that out, then, then, then that would be one of the most positive outcomes. If it's, if this is what it takes to get the proper conversation about global equity around vaccines and treatments and diagnostics, and let's not forget the treatments and diagnostics, it's not just about vaccines, then that's a great thing. But when you look globally at the failures, it seems to me the countries that screwed up and Britain high up on that list 
screwed up because of politics. It wasn't a lack of technocratic solutions. And I think we have to be really careful as we pour a lot of time and effort into PPR that we are not missing that big blazing issue because we could end up with treaties and documents and technocratic toolbook boxes and forget that fundamentally, if you had a Bolsonaro or a Modi or a Trump or a Johnson, you've got a lousy response. Now, I've just come back, as you know, from the World Health Assembly and for my sins, uh, did a series of daily podcasts with the Global Health Council and the fantastic Elisha Dunn-Georgiou. And she said something to me that was really interesting. And one of the reasons she really wanted to be doing these podcasts is that she felt that the, the lockdowns that had happened from COVID-19 had allowed government authorities and organizers of multilateral meetings, et cetera, et cetera, to minimize the involvement of civil society. And so it was really important to shine a light on that. And, you know, you've got um, senior roles within the, the Global Fund. You're the vice president of the technical review panel of the Global Fund. Look, I got that right. Uh, Almost. Amazing. Vice chair. Almost. Vice, vice chair. chair. What did I call you? You call me vice president, which is really nice. I'd like to be Kamala Harris, but I'm not. See, I see, I see you as a presidential candidate. That's why. Anyway, so, but back to this point, um, are you seeing uh, one of the downsides of the COVID experience being that authorities are clipping the wings of civil society engagement? I, I mean, there's no question. I, I'm so looking forward to meeting Elisha Dunjorju whenever I can. I've always been a fan of the Global Health Council. Loved listening to those podcasts and was really alarmed to hear what she was saying about the way in which the international system was pushing back. For a while, I was the head of the Partnership for Maternal, Newborn and Child Health, which is based at WHO. So I saw a little bit of the uh, international system from the inside. And of course, I, I worked with DFID, so I was uh, you know, working in a government. And I, I know from those perspectives, how member states can operate. And there are member states who are really passionate about civil society. The Dutch always have someone from civil society or a young person on their delegation in those formal, uh, in those formal meetings. But I'm afraid that, as she indicated, it has given a lot of space to member states, to governments that are not fans of civil society to exclude. And I was very concerned to, to hear those uh, stories that she was telling. And it's one of the reasons so many of us, I think, feel very attached to the Global Fund, because when the Global Fund was created 20 years ago, the whole governance model, which remains, is that it's equality between donors and implementers, between those giving money to the Global Fund and those using the resources. And within that, the highest levels of governance, civil society, and the communities most affected sit at the table. Um, and those three board seats amongst the 10 implementers have power. I think the reason we're seeing this shrinking civil society space at an international level is, yes, about COVID, but I think it's something bigger and more worrisome. And it's the fundamental human rights challenge that we see. I mean, Civicus does this um, annual ranking of, uh, civil of civic space, and they come up with some really terrifying statistics in terms of how at local level the attacks on civil society and community organizations are growing. And we, I mean, I remember hearing this first in from India with extraordinary groups like the Mumbai Lawyers Collective finding that they were becoming illegal. Um, and when we do our reviews as a technical review panel for the Global Fund, 
you know, Global Fund puts a lot of money to civil society, really prioritizes that. It's one of the top objectives in the new Global Fund strategy. And yet we see in far too many of the countries that we review that civil society receives a tiny amount of the money. They're not really engaged. And and we are often asking countries to make sure they have the legislation so that the country itself will partner with civil society and fund civil society. Because if we know nothing from the AIDS crisis, we know that you get a lousy response if a whole bunch of it isn't delivered by communities. Health authorities alone cannot reach marginalized co- uh, communities. And in every country of the world, it's the most marginalized and often criminalized populations that are at risk um, and, and living with HIV. And if we don't get that right, we will never, ever achieve our global goals on AIDS. And, and to be even more direct about it, if we don't reach the marginalized with services that they can access, we uh, allow, essentially, um, we, 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 we allow the development of uh, further strains of HIV. We allow the development of new uh, pandemics. Again, nothing for us without us. You cannot control a pandemic by driving it underground. You said something, Robin, very interesting uh, there about communities playing a really central role in implementation in a way that governments perhaps can't. And I just wanted to ask you, when we talk about the engagement of civil society, I'm drawn back to some of the civil society representatives who are part of US delegations at UN meetings in the early to mid-2000s, and they would be anti-abortion activists. They would be um, traditional marriage uh, activists. Uh, They would be forced birth activists. And um, I just wonder how you see the role of communities led by and serving those marginalized communities playing a role in this new environment and what, you know, the role of um, oldies like us can be in supporting that. Yeah. And this is where it's it's such a, a treacherous space, isn't it? Because what is a community? What is civil society? And you're absolutely right um, that when you dig into some of the funding flows, you discover that the groups that have been inspiring the hate-filled anti-gay legislation in Uganda and increasingly in many other countries, mainly in Africa, but not only in Africa, those are civil society groups. Um, And they are civil society groups with headquarters far away from the countries whose laws they're meddling in. Now, as a Brit, this is a hard thing to say because Those anti-homosexuality laws in India and Uganda carry the same number because they are our laws from our revolting colonial past. So I'm not standing and saying any of this with any pride. But I think that the donors of our world, be they foundations, multilaterals, or individual donors, have a real responsibility to get their funds directly to communities at country level um, and to those sort of more how can I put it, legitimate networks of um, marginali- of communities and marginalized populations. Because there is no doubt that there are these huge INGOs, often not always as visible or putting, you know, pinning their colors where they should, 
that are causing a great deal of harm and damage. And it's turning around into, oh, but these are African ways of being, which is nonsense. When I was leading She Decides, we did a huge amount of work with youth groups in different countries across, um, particularly in Eastern Southern Africa, mm-hmm. <clears throat> excuse me, but also in, in other countries and in, in Asia and in, in, uh, in Latin America. And those youth groups were really taking on their elders. And of course, we're in a situation where in many countries, 50% of the population is under the age of 30 and 35. And this, this is not a population that is, um, you know, anti-abortion and restrictive in this way. So we, we've got to find ways in which we can help um, communities to have voice and to stand up to these groups. So if you look into your crystal ball, or if you look into your Hermione's magic bag, what does the next 40 years look like? What are you what are you hopeful that we can do by reflecting on the past and looking to the future? Gosh, Hermione's magic bag. Um, and I shouldn't really have used that um, uh, allegory given uh, the role of the writer in uh, some of the conversations around trans communities, which is just abhorrent. But anyway, so. Well, it's more com- it, that's a complicated, different conversation, isn't it, which we're going to put a pin in. Um, what do I see for the next 40 years? Well, I hope that we will see a resurgence of smart activism. And I want to emphasize the smart as well as the activism. Um, and, and I hope that we will find ways to learn from the changes that we made by working together well and really focusing in on the changes that need to happen. I hope we will find a way of thinking more creatively about how we look to the future, to the new things that are coming, and don't lose sight of AIDS, of COVID, of the women's rights battles. I mean, let's take that as an example. Every time we get a Republican president in the US, the lives of women around the world get more treacherous and more awful. And yet somehow we don't get ready for it. We don't prepare for it in the way we should. Um, and and we need to learn from our past. It's going to happen again. These groups are out there. So how can we take what we did before and stop this recurrence? How can we see the linkages between the anti-women movement and the anti-gay movement? And those are so aligned. It's the same groups that are pushing for women to be forced to give birth um, and forced to continue with their pregnancies that are pushing to criminalize gay men. And and we've got to find our energy and our hope around that. But I was also thinking about the end of the PHIC, the Public Health Emergency of International Mm. Concern. And I was thinking about the fact that many of us have a little hashtag, COVID is not over. And I recently found an ACT UP uh, sticker from 1988, which says the AIDS crisis is not over. I thought how peculiar this is, that we always want to think these crises are over. And I suppose when the extreme levels of death stop or slow, we we get excited. And, and one of the guys is actually part of the conference that I'm here, one of the originators of this uh, AIDS Impact Conference, told me many years ago about social science research into earthquakes. And he said, immediately after an earthquake, you see communities come together and they do the most miraculous things. They shelter each other. They feed each other. They take families into their homes. They build houses. They dig in the ground. They find dying and sick people. And then within three months, they go back to the same 
disputes and shocking bad behavior that goes on in any community. And it made me think a lot, and it's always stayed with me, about how long can we keep the momentum going? Because actually when there's been an earthquake, the first three months isn't really the tough bit. The tough bit is what happens after. And I think, you know, in terms of the COVID response, we at some point have to say it's not a huge emergency and we have to build back and we have to think about how we continue. But there are still a lot of people dying. There are still a lot of unknown questions. There are still a lot of issues for people with long COVID and no research and no treatment. And when we look at HIV, you know, it's incredible. We don't have busloads of our friends going to funerals every two days as we used to in the 80s and 90s. But there are still real challenges. I worked in South Africa when we went from Manto to Motswaledi and we went from people denying that HIV caused AIDS to treatment becoming available. But I heard the other day that there are 2 million South Africans not on treatment. And we really need to understand what the heck that's about. Is that because the treatments are no longer working for them? Is it side effects? Is there something we need to do to make those treatments better? Is it because the services aren't right? Is it because people don't understand? Is it because stigma and discrimination is too huge? It's probably a mixture of all of that. But where are the where are our conversations to stick with this for the long haul and and make sure that in 40 or maybe 20 years' time, we're not sitting there looking back, you and I, and going, didn't we do a great job in the 80s and 90s and what a catastrophe it is now? That can't be the narrative. We need to keep on building in our success and adapting and making sure we listen to the people most affected first. Which is why I think us, I'm not sure I can necessarily call us elders yet, but why us uh, older teenagers still have a a role to play. Um, But look, two final questions. And we're recording this um, uh, on a weekend in an extraordinary time in, in British history where Oh my gosh, a former prime minister has stepped down from being an MP. Um, the head of the Scottish National Party got arrested, former head of the Scottish National Party, who was a huge hero of mine, got arrested. What the hell is going on with the motherland? But particularly, Robin, what the hell is going on as it relates to global health? It's tragic, really. I mean, I when I was hired by DFID, what, a decade plus ago, I was two decades, oops. Um, I was so proud because we, as a nation, were known for doing great work on international development. We had a conversation which said, our world needs to be healthy. We put AIDS on the top of the G8, as it was, agenda, the top of the European, we were even in Europe and we were the president, and we said, these are top priorities global health, top priorities, Gavi. Global Fund, we we did the first Global Fund replenishment. These things really, really mattered. And now they don't. We've rolled DFID into the Foreign Office. There's very little prospect that it's going to come back out and be a separate department any day soon. And that really matters because it means that when our cabinet meets and we are all hoping that it will soon be a Labour cabinet, we can only hope that the antics of the last few days make that more likely. But international development and global health, I don't think, is going to be central for a while. And that's bluntly because our politics have become so toxic. It takes me back to what we spoke about at the beginning of this podcast. Unfortunately, tragically, 
the consequence of what has unraveled around Europe and Brexit reflects that our population has been encouraged to become even more xenophobic, even more racist, and I, and I would say very clearly encouraged by media and by the echo chambers that some live in. We've got a very divided society, and we've got a very um, economically challenged society, and we have our nurses and our teachers going to food banks because they cannot manage their basic daily living. And in that context, it's really hard to see how we're going to regrow a conversation about global health. I think we can, I think we must, but I think we've got to be incredibly creative and smart and think about telling the stories of global health, which have a tinge of self-interest. You know, we're never going to be a healthy country unless we're a healthy world, but also are founded in compassion and solidarity and actually understanding what kind of world do we want to live in. And I think we've got to, as activists, as civil society, regrow that narrative and bring people with us. Because at the moment, I'm embarrassed to hold the passport that I hold. I mean, the other hashtag that's doing the rounds is better together. And if there's anything that we must have learned from COVID, um, it is that SARS-CoV-2 and many other, uh, all pretty much, um, uh, infectious disease agents have really no interest and no understanding of borders, barriers, trade gr trade groups, um, and we have to find that uh, that solidarity um, again. I completely agree with you. We're coming to the top of the hour. One final question: You're in Stockholm. You're in Sweden. Have you got to see the ABBA Museum? Mamma mia. <laughs> we didn't prepare for this at all. <laughs> well, you know, if you'd not phoned me at this time, I'd be there right now. <laughs> I'd sing, but you'd hate it. I'll be there. I promise. I'll get you the T-shirt. Fabulous. <laughs> well, Robin, thank you so much for giving us some time on um, an early Sunday evening in uh, Stockholm. All the best with the uh, with the conference and the keynote, and um, look forward to staying much more in touch with you um, as uh, as our journeys continue. So, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. It's been a blast. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you to Robin Gorner. Thanks also to our executive producer and director, Eric Aspera of NewsDoc Media. And a big thanks to you. You can find us on all your favorite podcast platforms. And don't forget to check us out on our YouTube channel. And don't forget to give us five stars and recommend us to all your friends. Thank you, everyone. Have a great week and a safe week.